Welcome back to the Meet St. Louis podcast, the show taking you behind the scenes of your favorite breweries, restaurants, and small businesses. I'm your host, Alexis Zotos with KMOV, and Happy New Year. Welcome to 2021. For our first episode of this new year, we're taking you back in time and about an hour and a half outside of St. Louis to the historic German town of Hermann. Stonehill Winery started there back in 1847, and at one point was the largest winery west of the Mississippi, and at one point, the third largest in the world. Today, the family-owned winery has 190 acres of vineyards and has been at the forefront of pushing Missouri wine beyond what many first think of when they think of a Midwest winery. John Held grew up in the cellars of Stonehill Winery when his parents brought it back as the first winery since Prohibition essentially wiped them all out. John and his head winemaker, Sean Turnbull, who hails from Cape Town, South Africa, joined us this week on the podcast to talk about growing wine in the crazy Midwest climate, the changing industry, and the attention to detail that comes with growing 95% of their own fruit. So let's meet John and Sean. Well, thank you both so much for joining us for our first podcast of the new year. Yeah, it's pretty exciting that we're your uh, the the first to welcome 2021. I, I, I feel honored. Well, wonderful. And we felt like it was such a good opportunity to take a look at one of our oldest businesses here in Missouri. And John, I'd, I'd love to start with you and, and just get a little backstory on Stonehill Winery. Oh, sure. Stonehill Winery was established in 1847 um, by some of the original German immigrants here to in Hermann. Hermann's a very historical German community. And uh, the winery was the largest in the area. There were actually, uh, right before Prohibition, around 60 wineries in the Hermann area. Wow. And for one year, Missouri was the largest wine-producing state in the nation. Uh, and Stonehill, uh, for a period of time, was the second largest winery in the nation. Uh, quite huge, even by today's standards. Back then, it, it had a capacity of uh, over a million gallons of wine. And uh, we're nowhere near that size today. Wow. But. Obviously, Prohibition killed it Mm -hmm. and wiped out the industry here in Missouri, as it did all over the country. And uh, another factor that came into play in in the Herman area was the fact that this was a German community. And with World War I going on, Mm. uh, there was a lot of anti-German sentiment. And uh, the, the feds really took looked at these old Germans with a kind of a you know a little skepticism. So uh, they were the first people they went after when Prohibition hit, hmm. and no chance of making sacramental wines. I think primarily due to that issue. And so the uh, the winery facility with its beautiful underground cellars uh, was converted to a mushroom growing farm. Interesting. And, uh, <laughs> dark, cool, damp underground cellars were perfect. They built beds, filled them with compost, and, and grew mushrooms in them from uh, sometime in the late 20s up until 1967. And 
the owner of the mushroom farm at that time, uh, Bill Harrison, was planning his retirement and his exit strategy, and he had this vision to see the, the winery reopened as a winery. And my father just happened to have gotten into growing grapes a few years prior to that, um, about 18 miles away at a small vineyard. And uh, after a few, Bill Harrison talked to a few other experienced winemakers uh, from around the world and couldn't get any uh, serious interest because of the the state of the facility. It was quite Hmm. run down. Yeah, I would and, imagine uh, after all that time, it probably needed oh, quite a lot of work. It was, it was, uh, you know, really old buildings that had deteriorated. Um, but my my dad, being a real entrepreneur, um, just saw an opportunity and he grabbed it. and And Bill Harrison made him a an incredible offer. <laughs> it's basically it was basically come try it out. <laughs> For a couple of years, no risk. Um, my father's and mother's net worth in 1965 was twelve hundred dollars. Wow. They were they were poor. Um, but you know, so like my dad told me, um, I had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. And so he tried it. He had an old hand crank uh, crusher and press that was his great grandfather's, and he had this little four acres of grapes and knew of a couple other vineyards he could source grapes from. And uh, so off he went to Herman. Uh, my parents moved in the, to the second story of the the winery with their four little kids and started uh, making wine. And uh, I was seven that year. Do you have a lot of memories of that move there? Oh, yes. <laughs> because the mushroom business was going on for two years oh, while okay. we my family was starting the winery. And so I have these uh, vivid memories of the mushroom sellers and the, there were some real characters working here in the mushroom (laughs) facility and uh, some pretty amazing things. They had a couple of steam engines that they used to sterilize the sellers. So if you can imagine a seven-year-old kid hopping on an old steam engine as they moved. It's like a dream come true. Oh, it was phenomenal. And we were making wine in a little cellar off to the side. And that first year, I remember cranking the handle on this crusher, a little little kid of seven, you know, helping out. And uh, so I literally grew up with the business. And within two years, my uh, father and mother bought the facility from Bill Harrison at uh, what today seems like a steal. Um, in uh, 1997, we spent more on remodeling the restrooms <laughs> on the first floor than they spent on the entire property in 1967. So, uh, you know, they got it for a song and what seems like a song and a dance today, which back then for them was you know, a, a crazy investment. And, um, and so was, when they reopened this, was this one of the first wineries to really come back in Missouri or what's kind of the status of uh, that? Not, not just in Missouri, but in the whole Midwest. Wow. And so they were at the forefront along with just a couple of others in this resurgence of winemaking in the, in the Midwest. And uh, they were really the pioneers in Missouri. 
And it was a, just a couple of years later that the Hofer family in St. James uh, got into it with St. James Winery. And, and they were good friends. I mean, they, everybody was working together to uh, go to the state capitol, get the laws changed that allowed us to actually have an industry and increase mm. the amount of wine they could make. Uh, I you know, vividly remember my dad going up to the capitol with a few cases of wine in tow and you know, uh, things were a little different then. They'd pull up into the uh, the basement of the Capitol and ask the guard, where, where can I unload wine? And he'd say, oh, you know, right over there, that's where the Mr. So-and-so unloads. And <laughs> Mr. So-and-so happened to be one of the biggest bootleggers in Gasconade <laughs> County. So it was, it was definitely... He, there were some stories. I was at the but, Capitol uh, yesterday. Probably is a, a bit different than it is today. <laughs> quite a bit, quite a bit. But, uh, you know, so a lot of things had to change. Laws had to change. The industry grew. Um, my parents hired, a, you know, technical help within a few years. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've continued to grow and get uh, more and more sophisticated in our grape growing and wine production. Our our main thrust is quality. It always has been. Um, and, you know, I went off and studied enology and viticulture at California State University, Fresno, got mm. my Bachelor of Science in it, in the, in the, the science of winemaking and grape growing. So you kind of knew uh, from that young age that this was, this was going to be the path you were going to take? Well, when all you've done since mm. age seven is help around a vineyard and winery, it, it just seems logical. And... Uh, you know, so I, going going into the the academic program and winemaking, I myself and an, and another uh, fellow student who grew up in a winemaking family in California, we definitely had an advantage. <laughs> and uh, then I went on and interned in Europe for a half a year, uh, Switzerland actually, and worked in a very large winery in Canada for a, a few years, and finally came back home in 1983 and. Went to work with my folks, uh, initially running the vineyards, um, and now our vineyards are approximately 190 acres. A far uh, cry grow. from those first four acres that they started oh, with. Absolutely. We have uh, grapes on seven different locations within 14 miles of Herman. We grow 95% of our own fruit. It varies by year. You know, some years it's 90%, other years, 98%. But it allows us to control the quality from the moment the vines go in the ground. And as we speak, you know, I'm, I'm waiting on an order of grapevines for the spring that I ordered over a year ago. And it, it takes a two-year lead time to get the vines that I really want that are certified virus-free uh, in the variety I want and in the quantity I want. Um, and, and that's important, like uh, in the case of variety I'm going to plant this spring, it's Chamberson, uh, which we do as a varietal. And it also goes into some of our blends, including uh, the really popular Ozark Hellbender. But that variety um, historically has had some issues with virus and crop diseases uh, in the plant material that's out there. And the nursery industry, just within the 
you know recent few years has been able to uh, to get you know really cleaned up virus free disease free plant material and and propagate it in sufficient quantities for the industry so you know and you, and you have to pay a little bit more for that um, but that's important because we want we want really clean vines to give us really good quality fruit, uh, good chemistry, and then we you know manage the vineyards just the way we want. And and John, for the people who don't know much about the winemaking process, is that unusual for um, a winery to grow that large a percentage of their own fruit? Uh, it depends on the winery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, worldwide, there's a lot of uh, we would call it estates that do that. You know, a lot of people know about Bordeaux, mm-hmm. famous French area. Most Bordeaux chateaus grow their own fruit. Um, some, you know, Napa Valley, some of those wineries do, uh, but there's a, a huge industry in independent growers in California as well. So it, it just all depends on the business model and the, the winery in question. And uh, you mentioned, here, here, excuse me. You mentioned those two, you know, regions. You know, in California, we think about France, and we think about winemaking. Um, what is the difference here in Missouri? Uh, what lends itself here in Missouri to growing wine and growing grapes for wine? It's much more challenging. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Our, our continental climate. Um, so if you visit a Missouri winery, you're probably not going to find a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Chardonnay. Those are traditional European grapes, um, which are now grown in California, Washington. Areas It's grown in areas that don't have really severe winters. Mm-hmm. They, those varieties of European heritage uh, are not capable of handling the cold winter temperatures that we have here in the Midwest. And particularly, they they don't handle the ups and downs of temperature <laughs> swings that we get, you know, 60 degrees one day, 20 the next. Everyone knows um, that's, that's our crazy weather yeah, right here. <laughs> that's right. So we have to grow um, what we call American heritage varietals as well as hybrid varieties. And the the American heritage varieties are are somewhat native to the Midwest Mm. and the Eastern United States. And examples of that would be our our highly acclaimed Norton, as well as Concord and Catawba. Those are are native American heritage varietals. And then the hybrids are actually crosses between European grapes and native American grapes. So they – they have some of the characteristics of both. Uh, they have the ability to handle the climate, and then they have some of the wine attributes of the European grape. Hmm. And we have we have Sean on the on the line as well. And Sean is your head winemaker. So Sean, I'd love to bring you in, kind of walk us through what your experience has been like uh, at Stonehill and working with these varietals here in Missouri. So my background is uh, more from from a vinifera standpoint, which is uh, what John mentioned, you know, like Cabernet, Chardonnay, Merlot, um, all those really commercial varieties that you can find anywhere in the world. Um, You know, um, winemaking depends a lot on viticulture, and obviously, like John mentioned, everything is planted in a region for a specific 
reason as well. And b- because we are also limited in Missouri, we have to plant what we want to plant or, or what we can actually plant. So that just makes the whole, uh, you know, experience way more intense. So um, I, I used to, I'm from South Africa, so that's where I, you know, cut my teeth basically. And uh, it's not that winemaking is easy, but, but compared to that, winemaking here is, qu- is quite more difficult. Mm. You have to actually apply a lot more. Uh, from past experience as well as you know applied what you've studied and actually you have to keep on learning um, uh, throughout every every vintage um, because there's such a lot more variables that we work with um, you know the, uh, for example the chemistry of the fruit as it comes into the, the winery is, is not ideal and, and that's mostly due to um, you know the climatic conditions um, just for example we, we deal with a lot of higher acidities um than some vinifers in different regions um so what that does it actually makes the the end product out of balance if you don't give any input um during the production mm. process so it's um you know it just boils down to um you want to get the wine in balance and you have to start immediately once the fruit comes into the winery so there's a lot more winemaking per se that we actually do here I feel, you know, it's, um, I've been at the winery for 15 years and I, it's, it's a continuous learning process, you know, and I've learned a, a ton actually just while working here. And one of the key things you got to kind of think out of the box as well, um, maybe go a little bit against the grain of kind of what you, you know, taught doing and what other guys are doing as well. We are in a pretty unique viticulture area uh, as well as, you know, the end product being in a very unique um, consumer culture as well. What what brought you to the Herman area? What brought you to Stonehill 15 years ago? So um, I I didn't actually even know wine was made in Missouri. (laughs) (laughs) You know, kind of ignorant I was back then. Um, And it's actually funny. So uh, I I visited the States um, before on internships. I had an internship at in Virginia when I was um, very young and uh, a little bit later I had one out in uh, California and Napa as well at Heights Cellars and funny enough there was a, the assistant winemaker at Heights at that time Joe Norman he, he was telling me about his you know his um, his work experience in the states and he mentioned Missouri and it just completely went over my head and later, while I was working at Stonehill, I found out that Joe Norman was one of the very first winemakers at wow. Stonehill. <laughs> so it's just a small world, you know. Um, so uh, what what brought me over here is, so um, I, I applied to an um, uh, advertisement that John had up for our assistant winemaker at the winery. And me not knowing anything about, you know, the industry in Missouri, um, I kind of looked and went on the website and, and looked on an, at the numbers. And um, also there was an advertisement and producing 100,000 cases, you know, from over 180 acres. You know, that seemed to be pretty big for, for a, a winery in the Midwest where, where coming from a different country and, you know, a completely different wine world. You know, that that's kind of big because back where I'm from, you know, that's a really big winery actually. Mm-hmm. And then I started looking at all the, you know, the wines that Stonehill made, all the different wines, and that's everything. It was from sparkling wines, Method Champenois, dry wines, sweet wines, 
sport cherries, you know, late harvest, everything. So, so that really caught my appeal, just that diversity. And, and I like that, you know, because I'm, I'm not really a commercial guy and, you, you know, you can kind of just do all these things. And like I was talking about earlier, just be really creative about it. And that, that's what I like about it. You know, it's just uh, the creativity and, Talk to me about what you mean when you say get creative. Uh, I think for a lot of our listeners, they might not totally understand the full process of winemaking. Um, can you give us a, a brief little walkthrough of how the process works from from vine to glass? How uh, much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> you can kind of sum it up a little bit. Yeah. Well, Alexis, if I could jump in. Yeah, John. So, you know, we, we tend to, as technically trained winemakers and grape brewers, we tend to talk about the science, mm-hmm. but there's a whole other side to it, and that is the the art mm. of winemaking, and and that's what Sean's getting at, and, and I'll, I'll let him take over. I want to throw in, he is he really understands the art side of this, and we're, we're quite proud of it. So, yeah, I mean, just that is kind of, you you know, it's more of a feeling and um, it's almost a little bit selfish as well because obviously I drink wine. I like certain wines, so sometimes I'm a little bit, you know, oh, I like this style, so maybe I'll push it a little bit more. But, you know, it's um, so obviously you start working with grapes and then um, uh, fermentation is the first step after the juice has been extracted from the, um, the grape skins. Um, and fermentation is very important um, to uh, basically give you a, a clean and um, plate or platform to start working off. And obviously, you can uh, you can manipulate a little bit fermentation as well to enhance certain aromas and flavors, as well as textures of the wine. So that's where you can start becoming uh, creative already, you know. And then. Like John said, with the help of science, obviously certain temperatures influences the yeast in, in different ways. So uh, in, in the products that they give you from the from the metabolism um, is, is sometimes a little bit more um, complex. Uh, you can also start taking a little bit more risks by using you know wild fermentations or native uh, fermentations. Um, usually, with risk, obviously comes reward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there's little things like that, and it's just like turning the dials left and right, you know, um, just to make it a little bit more interesting. Um, what I really enjoy about it is once fermentation is done, um, you can start looking at blends. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, then you start blending different wines uh, with each other. Um, obviously, you're targeting, targeting a, a market segment or a consumer. Um, yeah, how so, much know, you, does that play in to to what you do? Is is what the consumer is looking for? How how much does that play into it? Oh, quite a lot. You know, it's um, it's quite a bit. Obviously, um, we know what our consumers like, so we really want to be uh, very consistent with with what we do every year. And um, they they almost um, you know, they're the trendsetters, so we know what works. So we, we keep that pretty much the same every year, but then sometimes we, we come up with a with a wine that's a little bit different than normal, you know, maybe a, a different style, and so we'll, we'll introduce that as well into the market. I think a, 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 a big one or a big example of that is our um, Ozark Albender uh, Red Blend that we we um, started I think three years ago, um, and John can 
jump in here. I think like two years ago, normally at Stonehill, like sweet wines was the number one seller uh, at the winery. And uh, actually the, the Ozark Hellbender, which is a dry red wine, that was the number one seller for quite a while at the winery. It still is. John, so, was that surprising to you after seeing what consumers had really sort of veered to for so many years? Was that surprising to see that sort of shift? Surprising? I doesn't sum it up. I was <laughs> floored, absolutely floored. Because, you know, basically we've been in business 56 years, and up until three years ago, our biggest selling wines were always the sweet wines. And in total marketplace, they still are. But at, in our winery sales room, where people have the opportunity to, to do a tasting, the Ozark Hellbender, which is a, a dry red blend, catapulted immediately into number one. And it's kind of a unique product because we have a partnership with the St. Louis Zoo uh, supporting their uh, captive breeding program for the critically endangered Ozark Hellbender mm. uh, cute little aquatic salamander that's only found in southern Missouri and northern Arkansas. And, and you know, we feel so good about this partnership because we're supporting their their breeding and release efforts. And we've got a great wine. And, you know, we get together with the zoo team pre-COVID, you know, for (laughs) fun stuff. But uh, it's it's just a feel-good product. So every bottle of that that's sold, uh, a portion of the proceeds go back to the St. Louis Zoo to support their their great work. And, you know, I think that that's something that a lot of people think about Missouri wine is they do think of those sweeter wines. Would you say that's one of the bigger misconceptions about wine growing and winemaking here in the Missouri area? It's it's one of the greatest misconceptions, and it's also the, the largest stumbling block to broader marketing. Mm. Um, and we've, we've tried to alleviate that problem. If, if you look at our back labels, on any one of our wines, there's a little sweetness chart. Mm. And so it'll indicate where that particular wine is, you know, from dry to sweet. And we try to have a product for every taste out there. And that has been one of our our reasons we've succeeded is that we haven't, you know, stated we're just going to make dry reds or dry whites. Um, we've, we've tried to cover the whole spectrum, as Sean talked about, and we apply the same dedication to quality across the board. And um, it's a little frustrating trying to sell the drier wines, or it has been, because so many people uh, just assume that Missouri's sweet wine only country, and it, it isn't. There's some incredible dry wines out there. How big of a difference does it make to have people actually come to the winery, see what you're doing, taste them in those tasting rooms? Oh, it's it makes a huge difference. Um, we have a couple of new, or one new product in particular that uh, I wish was selling better than it is. <laughs> but once we taste it, once we get a person to try it, they're like, they're just like, wow, this is good. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the challenge, uh, particularly with a, uh, a new product you're introducing. Uh, some of them hit, some of them don't. Uh, usually when you get a person to try it and they, they see how good it is, they're like, oh, yeah, you converted me now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, yeah, we love to have people come to the winery. Uh, 
unfortunately, due to the, the current uh, COVID situation, we aren't giving the tours mm-hmm. through our underground cellars. Uh, we just haven't been able to accommodate the social distancing requirements. And we've, we've, we're limiting uh, flow in our, our, our tasting rooms, but we have three tasting rooms. We're, if you come out, we're going to have room for you. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we love to have visitors to the winery, get to experience uh, the feel of the winery. Uh, we take great pride in our hospitality and, and our beautiful setting. Sean, what is it like for you when you get to actually witness people trying your wine, experiencing something new um, as they take those first sips? Uh, that's probably the most rewarding. Um, you know, coming from my stand perspective, it's like, wow, actually, uh, people are enjoying, you know. And so that, that's pretty cool, actually. And um, actually, this year, I I've, I've could add a um, pretty good picture of it. So Stonehill is on a hillside, and um, we've got nice seating area outside, and, and the lab is actually at the bottom of the hill so uh, we had a lot of you know people enjoying just the outside this year which which, which was um or last year i mean 2020 mm-hmm. um which was unusual and and for me it was i've just you know run a analysis or something i could just see the people on the hill enjoying the wine so i mean that, that's that's pretty cool and very rewarding uh it's, it's you know you won't sometimes you don't recognize it because it's just you know something but um yeah that's like the old saying goes, you know, the proof is in the pudding, and mm-hmm. uh, definitely people are enjoying the pudding, if you <laughs> want to put it like that. So, so that's always good. Well, you know, and Herman is is such a fun town just in itself. There's so much to do there, and as we take about a look at where we are and uh, in our in our world and in our time, travel is is pretty limited right now, but you can really find so much of of what we miss about traveling just by going a little bit outside of St. Louis. John, what what do you hope that people um, do when they come to Herman? Obviously stop at the winery, but tell us a little bit more about what they might experience there. I tell you, there's a lot to experience in Herman. Um, I wish more people would just take time to walk the historic district in town. Uh, there are a lot of little quaint shops. Um, and I live in the historic district and it's 17 minutes to walk from my house to the winery. Mm. So really, if you if you want to hike around town, it's pretty and beautiful and, and you know, the beautiful parks, beautiful architecture, uh, the beautiful historic sites with Deutschheim, uh, it's state historic site, and uh, the German School Museum, um, just lots of beautiful places there's distilleries there's other wineries uh, obviously we want you to come to Stonehill there's a couple of uh, one in Herman one a couple outside of town uh, really premier uh, sausage making companies uh, cured meats um, that do a great job uh, so a great getaway we're close to St. Louis you know our and 15 minutes, hour and a half, depending on where you live. Come out, park your car, just walk or take the trolley, ride all around town, hit all the sites, uh, enjoy the scenery. Sit down on the hill at Stone Hill, look over the vineyards, over the pretty town, and enjoy a nice bottle of wine. And, uh, you know, we sell um, snack items. You had Volpe Meats on. We did. That's a great episode if people haven't had a chance to listen to Volpe. 
Yeah, and we sell their products. So uh, come out to Stone Hill, get a bottle of wine, enjoy some uh, some of the great sausages we have for sale, and uh, just relax. As someone who who grew up in this business in this area, what has impressed you most about the growth that we've seen, not only in the wine industry here in Missouri in the Midwest, but just the the attention to really that homegrown product here in Missouri? Uh, I, I love the fact that we've grown this industry and, and I'm so proud that, that we're having these various local food and beverage industries popping up and growing. Um, it is, uh, it just makes so much sense to buy local, buy from your local farmers. I mean, basically, we're a farmer. We just happen to take our produce to the finished product mm-hmm. and crafting it into wine. Um, and, and eventually, we'll be crafting some spirits here, too. Mm. But uh, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the fact that the industry has worked uh, very diligently together uh, for um, uh, legislative issues as well as research issues. Um, the state has a grape and wine program that markets, you know, the wine. And uh, we also have a research side of that program that's that's looking into better ways to, you know, grow grapes and make better quality wine. And the, the industry really works well together on that. Um, very proud of that. Our biggest competitor, I don't really think of them as a competitor, St. James Winery, um, you know, they're, they're personal friends. We've grown up in this industry together and we take the lead together on things as well as, you know, some of the Augusta wineries, uh, Montel, Augusta, they do a fabulous job and are really involved in this is along with many, many others. So it's a great industry, great people. You'll have to make a visit to Herman to get that real experience of the tasting room that we talked about on this week's episode as described by Sean and John. But you can actually find Stonehill wines at restaurants and stores all around the St. Louis region. 2021 might be the year that we really start traveling again, but for now, it seems like exploring a little bit more of our backyard is still the safest bet, and we hope to take you to some of those places here on the Meet St. Louis podcast. We have a ton of great episodes planned here for the new year. Make sure you are subscribed to the Meet St. Louis podcast so you know exactly when a new episode drops. This episode was produced by JJ Bailey.